The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Hello and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Um, This is not Mary Woods, this is Mark Green. I'm the medical director at Westbridge um, and a psychiatrist and I sit in for Mary about once a month or when I have extra special guests who I want to interview myself. And today, I have Sue Estroff. Um, Sue is professor in the Department of, of, Department of Social Medicine, um, of Anthropology and Psychiatry at University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. Sue was the chair of the faculty from 2000 and 2003. Um, she's received the Margaret Mead Award from the American Anthropological Association um, and has been the past president of the Society for Medical Anthropology, as well as visiting professor and lecture, lecturers, lecturer in Germany, Toronto, and Tokyo. Sue's research interests include individuals with chronic illness and disabilities, cultural approaches to psychosis, socio-cultural factors that influence the course of psychiatric disorders, and the production of knowledge in qualitative scholarship, reconsidering the association of violence with persons with psychiatric disorders and many more areas. Um, Sue has co-edited The Social Medicine Reader and numerous other publications, including Ironic Interventions, Balancing the Risks and Reward in First Episode Psychosis, no Other Way to Go, Pathways to Disability Income Among Persons with Severe Persistent Mental Illness, and again, many, many other um, <laughs> fascinating articles. Um, today I've got Sue on the other end of Skype as well, so we can see each other, which is nice. Um, hi, Sue. Hi. Welcome to One Hour at a Time, and thank it's you for joining us It's great to be today. with you. So, Sue, um, yes. to get started, um, I'm interested... Maybe you could talk to us a little bit about this whole idea of the interface between culture and psychiatric disorder. You know, um, we tend to just think of psychiatric disorder as being an illness, something wrong with your brain. Um, right. And um, your writing and thought has been part of a real effort to broaden this uh, idea. So, right. Out. Well, I guess the easiest way to put it is that People in different places think that what is different and out of out of bounds, um, they set their own parameters for that. So what may be inappropriate or nonsensical in one setting makes perfect sense in another. And we know that people describe pain differently in um, Sri Lanka as opposed to Argentina and so forth and so on. And uh, 
the basic premise is that we learn to define and experience illness in the same way that we learn everything else in society, what being a male means, what being a female means, um, when do you get to stay home from school, what's really sick, what's not, so forth and so on. So we look at psychosis as a part of social and cultural life and how it gets defined, how it gets responded to, who responds, um, the content of what people think, their place in society, are they revered, are they feared. And we see a lot of differences cross-nationally. So the idea that the brain is a universal organ and that, let's say, psychosis is the same process for everyone in all places is just incorrect. So this goes way beyond just the fact that Sri Lankans refer to um, pain with different language terms. Right. You're talking right. about the experience and all of its ramifications in terms exactly. of acknowledgement, treatment, and every aspect of it, right? Yes. Yeah. And we see not only, we see not only differences across cultures, but within a heterogeneous society like ours and most of Western Europe now, um, different people attach different meanings to their experiences. So if I'm hearing a voice, it could be quite an achievement in some place. Or if I'm um, thinking that I have godlike capacities, um, that might put you in line to become a shaman or a healer or um, in some parts of current day Israel is a medium for God's word. So really, you have to understand people in their own terms and in their own context. That's the easy way to say it. So if someone was perceiving, um, was hearing voices, let's say, as an example, mm-hmm. um, and was in a culture where they would, um, where that might be revered or they might be considered mm-hmm. a Brahmin or so mm-hmm. then the response of the society and of your family would be very different. Would that change the course of, um, <laughs> of the next few years? This is the big question. This is the big question. Um, Hard to answer because, number one, um, antipsychotics are global mm-hmm. and in some places used somewhat indiscriminately. Um, but if it were not seen as a pathology and evidence as of a brain lesion, but as perhaps um, being in touch with ancestors or something like that, then you wouldn't immediately be pathologized you would find other people who had the same experiences who were not pathologized. And we see that now in the Hearing Voices group who say, this is not a sign of illness. This is part of who I am, and it's something to be valued, not something erased, as opposed to someone else who might say, oh, that's a primary symptom of psychosis. You need medication. Mm-hmm. So, and, and then, then there is some evidence of the difference that that, that can um, bring. I'm thinking mainly of the, the fairly old now WHO study, uh, yes. World Health Organization study. What were the implications of that for you? Um, and basically, that seemed to show that while rates of schizophrenia may may be um, onset of schizophrenia may be equal in different countries, the outcomes mm-hmm. were better in the developing world than for the um, developed world, where there was more. Right, right. 
Well, this, of course, is a, a matter of ongoing controversy. And part of the reason we can't answer the why question that you're posing is because we don't have the information. But the nominees for explaining some of the differences are exactly what you just brought up, and that is that there's more inclusion within families and less exclusion, that there are other roles, um, mostly productive roles, in, let's say, an agrarian society where you can go help with the in harvesting rice or herding sheep or doing whatever it is your group does, which is very different than flipping burgers in McDonald's or having a high-stress job here so that you retain a, a more valued role. Mm-hmm. Um, so, But the bottom line is we still haven't answered the question. We don't know why. But we do know that there is something toxic about industrialized, mostly Western um, settings for people to have schizophrenia. It's it's not a great place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, there might also be some difference with um, the um, level of fit that you have with the culture in which you find yourself. Right. Such as um, if people immigrate to an area right. where there's a low frequency of um, people from their own culture, they have higher rates of onset of schizophrenia and tend to do a lot worse. Um, right. So there's an intersection between culture and familiarity and acceptance and... And social resources and, in fact, um, Roland Littlewood has spent quite a lot of time, he's a researcher in the U.K., looking at... Well, you understand then that he's still trying to sort out Afro-Caribbean versus African uh, rates of psychosis and schizophrenia. And the whole immigration um, and psychosis issue is also very hard to tease out. Uh, we do know that there are lots and lots of people who probably have the neurochemical and genetic capacity to develop schizophrenia who don't. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. There are lots and lots of people out there who have never moved, as we would say, from the genotype to the phenotype. Even the twin studies show us that the concordance rate is higher, but what about the other 40% where there's discordance. Absolutely. And, of course, we know that there's vastly differing um, courses um, in yes, the, we do. In, in, in after diagnosis with schizophrenia. Um, right. There are perhaps as many or more, uh, around 50% of people um, can have very um, good um, recovery right. so far. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, so you said that there's something toxic about... Um, developed world in some way. What's the, what's, what's the big deal in terms of psychiatry and the way we practice psychiatry? You know, like, um, what are we missing out here? Well, um, good question. Um, I think the evidence is accumulating um, from lots of different um, sectors of both advocacy and research that the way that we respond to people with psychosis, and I'll just take the United States here, um, is um, well-intentioned but oftentimes creates more what I call symptoms of treatment than it helps people to recover. And the chief complaints are that of being forcibly treated, 
of getting only medication, which um, is damaging psychically and physically, of a lack of respect and dignity, a lack of um, person-to-person time, um, and a whole variety of things which speak to a kind of non-institutional warehousing um, and the idea that these are people who cost us a lot, who give us very little, and who are dangerous, all of which are patently not true. So you said three things, that they're dangerous, that they cost us a lot, and... Sorry. Contribute very little. Contribute very little. So hmm? say something about how each of those are patently untrue. Well, let's uh, let's talk about the fear factor first, um, because I think it's it's really key right now. Um, the prevalence and incidence of violent acts and threats. So the number of people who have psychosis, who commit violent acts and threats, is five times less less than people who have primary disorders of substance abuse. Five times less than people who have problems. So, so you have five times greater the number of people who are using alcohol without mental illness. I mean, there's a lot of overlap, perhaps, but without mental yes. illness who um, are contributing to most of the violence. Well, yeah, if you look at the, the best data that we have, if you look at people who have a diagnosis of uh, psychosis or uh, Psychiatric no, disorder Stu, alone. I hear the music creeping in here, but we're going to have okay. to take a short break. We'll come back okay. in a moment and continue with this point. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family center of recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Can you imagine a technology that takes human consciousness to the next level? One that reveals a new understanding of what is valuable and possible in the abundant support of life? The truth is, we already have that technology. We simply need to awaken to it and become the value it creates. For more about this, please tune in to Awakening Value, Shamanic Technologies of Consciousness and Success with host Marty Spiegelman. Awakening Value is live every Thursday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. The Mayan calendar tells us that we will be entering into a 260-day opportunity for us to engage in conscious co-creation with great spirit. How will we prepare ourselves for this exciting and unprecedented time in Earth's history? Peter Tung has dedicated over 20 years of his life's work to exploring that which is beyond understanding. Peter will help increase your awareness and education on this enlightening transformation in consciousness. Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation airs live Wednesdays at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on 7th Wave Network. 
Have we got a high-energy, all-access sports show for you. It's Outside the Huddle, starring Lemont Williams with co-host Jacob Greer. Each week, join Lemont and Jacob as they take callers, discuss the week's top stories in the world of sports, and sit down with active and former players to discuss their transition from sports to business. Outside the Huddle is a great resource for players making career transitions both on and off the field. Tune in Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 Central, and 5 Pacific for Outside the Huddle on the Voice America Sports Channel. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Hi, welcome back. This is Mark Green with One Hour at a Time and guest Sue Estoff. Um, so, Sue, we left before the break talking about um, three myths, um, which um, I know that you've done some research um, mm-hmm. into about, um, you know, which, and you were talking about the fear um, that people with major mental illness um, need treatment, and this was the point which we didn't sort of say, need treatment, need involuntary commitment at times, and we have to have a very high level of serious diagnosis and and um, commitment and treatment mm-hmm. um, because they can be dangerous. Right. And you've done interesting research right. trying to look at that. So, yeah, continue with that point. So uh, part of the concern, and especially um, with probably many of your people up there, has to do with laws like Kendra's law with this idea that the main way to stop people from doing um, things that are scary to others is to force them to take medication and that or to confine them. Mm-hmm. And the issues there are that we don't have the same standards for people who are demonstrably more likely to be violent and that's people who have primary substance abuse disorders and also that the actual number of violent incidents is very, very low if you look at the base rate in the population. But what they are is spectacularized in the press, the Virginia Tech situation, Mm -hmm. um, things like that. And they are uh, manipulated by some um, advocacy groups who take as their... uh, aim that the only way to get enough funding for mental health services is to scare people mm-hmm. and to say that if these people had only been taking their medications, this wouldn't have happened. And that's just demonstrably, it's not provable that just taking your meds would stop these things from happening. You know, you, you, we met at a uh, an interesting conference, um, mm-hmm. the INTAR conference, mm-hmm. um, treatment alternatives in recovery Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think it was you who said look you know there's tons of people who walk down the street and think oh I'd like to kill them or um, oh I should just kill myself Mm -hmm. from time to time it's 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 something that we're always thinking and people certainly um, I've had um, 
um, participants or or patients in my practice who've, who've had these thoughts for decades mm-hmm. um, and never acted on them. That right. um, the correlation between these concerning thoughts and acts is quite low. But you're making just a, a, a straightforward epidemi- epidemiological point. Right. That it's very low base rate and it's far more common um, in people who um, do not have primary psychiatric illnesses. Exactly. And the other thing that we have to take a look at is towards whom are they violent? And we did a study um, to try to reframe the issue from who are violent people, because we say, oh, people with schizophrenia are violent people, to reframe it and say, what, what kinds of people in what situations feel uh, make violent threats or acts towards others. So to take it, to look at high-risk situations rather than high-risk people. Mm-hmm. because And so we um, did a study and we looked not at who committed a violent act or threat, but who the targets, um, who the, the objects of the violent threats and violent acts were towards because we wanted to know the context. And for example, what we wanted to sort out was, let's say I hit my brother. And if I have schizophrenia and I hit my brother, the hitting my brother gets put in the schizophrenia column, that somehow schizophrenia is responsible for it. But maybe I hit my brother because he's a jerk and he and I always hit each other. Mm-hmm. So the biographical relationship within families in particular gets lost and schizophrenia gets blamed, and that's just inaccurate. So we had a lot of information about people in our study and their relationships with others, and what we found was that most of the people, um, that very few people in our study did anything violent over two and a half years, something like uh, 14%, and that the most likely target um, were their mothers, there's the mothers were at 25 times higher risk than anyone else, and when we looked at what that was about, um, it was people who, as adults, were living with their mothers and who were financially dependent. Mm-hmm. And what we wanted to do was sort out: is this how much of this has to do with schizophrenia, and how much of it is domestic violence or family-based? And we w- took a step further. Um, we looked at those mothers who had been objects of threats or acts, and we interviewed them, and we gave them the same rating scales that we gave to the consumers in the study, and we found that those mothers who were targets described themselves as more threatening and hostile than the mothers who weren't. So what we found was mutual threat and mutual um, aggression and hostility, not all one-sided. So, you know, Westbridge um, uses a lot of um, family therapies, mm-hmm. um, you know, to reduce the hostility and critical comments within exactly. uh, family dynamics and really focuses upon that as the, uh, you know, which has been shown repeatedly for decades now to reduce right. levels of um, rehospitalization right. um, and just improve right. all outcomes. Um, right. And this speaks to that, that what you're picking up on is the hostility 
um, within the dynam within the relationship within the um, context. So yeah. and or, and domestic violence exactly. Yeah. And so there are a couple of implications here. One is that we really need to take a look at if you want to reduce the risk, you say this person's living in a high risk situation. They should have another place to live. Mm-hmm. They're adults living at home with their parents. <laughs> There's built-in tensions anyway. So instead of saying, oh, schizophrenia causes violence, let's find another place for that person to live. Or work on the family dynamics you know, exactly. in a productive fashion to en- enable that person to become a supportive Exactly. Person. So uh, I go back to this idea um, that simply medicating one person doesn't resolve this situation, which can result in what we then attribute to schizophrenia. Yeah. So focusing out a little bit here, mm-hmm. um, this is also touching on the idea of um, insight and whether someone um, and when you take away somebody's voice to yes. um, express um, their own personal narrative. Right. So um, and and ties in so much with the broader issue of um, commitment um, and, you know, the, the way we, the, um, the, we've tended to do business a bit. Yeah. It, well, part of the whole idea of looking at violence in context was to return the personhood to the person and look at their lives rather than their diagnosis. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't just, oh, we're looking for this link between violence and schizophrenia. It's like, Uh, Well, wait a minute, there's a person there, too. And the problem that I have with um, outpatient commitment in particular um, are two. Number one, it is a a tremendous overriding of autonomy and citizenship that happens to people. And it's based on very loose criteria often that say, um, we think you ought to get take these medications or we think that you ought to go to these treatment services many of which are terrible very low quality oversubscribed undersaffed um oftentimes um insulting or demeaning to people and they don't want to go right so what we say my definition of insight is that it means you agree with the doctor that's essentially what we say insight is. So if you don't agree with me that you should take these medications, there's something wrong with you. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and conversation can stop then. Exactly. Um, yeah, the dialogue or the effort from the clinician to um, understand um, the person in front of them, really listen to what their perspective is, exactly. and try and help them to meet their goals, um, stops. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And... You know, to open the gambit with first Medicaid, then we'll talk about it. Um, there was some very interesting data presented at the study at the conference about the way the open dialogue people in Finland do it, and they have been able to uh, withhold um, heavy-duty antipsychotics for six weeks right. in their program, and those people did better over time. And we know this from very early. Uh, research that Carpenter and Strauss did about treating psychosis without drugs, that people who had a chance to be in a safe place and integrate what was happening to them could make more meaning out of this experience they were having. 
we've got Mary Olsen as a guest on the show next week talking about open dialogues. Um, Good. So that'll be an interesting. And that also um, brings in the family. So I guess going back to the whole idea of outpatient commitment, the idea there is that, okay, you don't like what we're offering you. We're going to force you to go to these services. And my feeling about that is uh, then there ought to be a, uh, a parallel commitment from the services so that if you don't provide adequate services, you're in contempt. And I, we're coming up to another break, but I know that there is some research by Fierstein and Gunn, is that right, um, looking at the um, outcomes of involuntary outpatient commitment and finding them no better. Is that correct? Well, the Cochrane, all of the Cochrane reviews um, show that there is absolutely no demonstrable benefit from outpatient commitment or confinement and containment strategies. And, you know, that's the gold standard. What you can demonstrate is that people use more services. Well, duh, they have to go. <laughs> All right, Sue, let's take a short break. Okay. Be back in a moment. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. The Mayan calendar tells us that we will be entering into a 260-day opportunity for us to engage in conscious co-creation with great spirit. How will we prepare ourselves for this exciting and unprecedented time in Earth's history? Peter Tong has dedicated over 20 years of his life's work to exploring that which is beyond understanding. Peter will help increase your awareness and education on this enlightening transformation in consciousness. Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation airs live Wednesdays at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on 7th Wave Network. Have we got a high-energy, all-access sports show for you. It's Outside the Huddle, starring Lemont Williams with co-host Jacob Greer. Each week, join Lemont and Jacob as they take callers, discuss the week's top stories in the world of sports, and sit down with active and former players to discuss their transition from sports to business. Outside the Huddle is a great resource for players making career transitions both on and off the field. Tune in Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 Central, and 5 Pacific for Outside the Huddle on the Voice America Sports Channel. This is an important programming note from the Voice America Women's Channel. The Catherine Zox Show is moving. Our new address is Voice America, and we will be heard on Wednesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern, starting Wednesday, November 19th. All of the archives will still be available through Catherine's Boombox Player. Remember, tune in to the Catherine Zox Show on Wednesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern, beginning on Wednesday, November 19th, on Voice America's flagship Voice America Channel. Your life, your health 
your network. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Hi, this is Mark Green. I'm standing in for Mary today with our guest Sue Westhoff. Sue, before the break, we're just talking about um, the um, underpinnings, the the idea that danger um, justifies involuntary commitment. Right. um, And some of the research, which really doesn't necessarily support that epidemiologically. Um, During the break, we were emphasizing how difficult the therapeutic alliance becomes once those steps are taken. Mm-hmm. Uh, both for the, you know, I have, I, I do work with people who um, are involuntarily um, committed to be treated by me, um, yeah. often by the family and um, often um, with my support. Mm-hmm. And um, then to try, you know, it, it's a very interesting, difficult nexus to find myself in to try because I'm committed to um, helping someone visualize their valued goals and to help them um, overcome the challenges on the way to those goals uh, primarily um, but then I've become one of the uh, ob- um, the oppressors focuses <laughs> and challenges on the way yeah. um, which is autonomy um, but um, it also interferes so much with the support network and being able to turn the family um, from um, fear um, from afraid and beaten down and burnt mm-hmm. out to supportive and encouraging. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, so, what? But but then we are also saying, you know, on the contrary, there are many families and people who are, who are, who do live in fear and get terribly distressed mm-hmm. at the um, ongoing demise and stumbling um, yeah. that, and, and pain. Um, that people find themselves in when they struggle with a mental illness um, often really. yeah it 's an extraordinary um, it 's an extraordinarily complicated and difficult question it 's mm-hmm. the grief and fear at losing or seeing your family member um, in some ways slip away from you and become someone who 's a stranger to you is is almost indescribable yeah. and this is I guess this is where I think that we've failed um, socially and scientifically to provide um, effective and humane and non-destructive alternatives for people. If you're feeling afraid or somebody's got radio waves in your head, um, your experience here in North Carolina would be that if you got committed, you would be shackled and put in a sheriff's car and taken to a hospital. And many of the people that we talked to in our study thought they had committed a crime and now had a criminal record. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think that whole, the symbolism of uh, getting taken away in shackles is not so modern as we would like to think it is. And I think this issue of the family being the victim and the consumer being the perpetrator really gets us nowhere. Absolutely nowhere, because 
it doesn't resolve anything. What it does is say, oh, well, it's not my fault. It's not our fault. We were just innocent victims. And what's really at fault is your brain. And the only thing we have to do is fix your brain and everything will be all right. So a lot of what we've been talking about is how um, the system and the language we use and the way our medical system is established Mm -hmm. um, takes away the voice of people um, with mental illness and um, and blames to the extent where we say Look, it's, it's your brain. Yeah. You know, it's this. It's a bunch of chemicals which is causing the problem here. Right. Um, and um, and yes, if all treatment were as Westbridge, um, <laughs> which we hope is you know compassionate right. and and um, right. family focused and all all this right. great stuff, then. Um, then our discussion might be different, but unfortunately, um, what you're saying is that the underfunding and the philosophi- philosophical approach mm-hmm. um, of the healthcare system can be sidestepped because you say that you need this for your own good, and society needs this for their own good. Right, and therein takes us to the next one, and that is the huge burden and cost mm-hmm. that people talk about all the time, and for some reason. Um, some of my colleagues think that showing how huge a burden is will get people's attention and then they'll pay, you know, they'll respond in a more positive way. I I don't think that's the case. So when we hear about the burden of depression in the World Health Organization and the burden of this and the burden of that, uh, the backlash is, you people are costing me a lot of money and I need that money and I don't want to have to pay for you. The only reason I want to pay for you is to keep you away from me. And so, yes, there are certainly um, huge costs, but um, we have huge... The doesn't bring about compassion. Yeah. (laughs) We're talking about community, and we're talking about a sense of of a a humane kind of owning... um, a citizens of, of... with all different kinds of abilities here... So uh, the idea of cost is <clears throat> huge. Medicaid, which is the main way that people get paid for, um, is a huge problem for every state, and every state is cutting back services. And what they think of when they cut back is, well, paying for a prescription is a lot less than paying for a salary for a therapist or a case manager or a service coordinator. And so let's just buy some psychiatric time, get those 15-minute med checks, and, you know, that'll do it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And <clears throat> it's clearly not enough. We know that. We've tried that. And I think the last um, misconception here is the idea that um, we miss out on the contributions that people have psychiatric disorders make. And I don't mean that... Um, some actor or actress comes out and says, I have bipolar illness or whatever. Mm-hmm. What I mean is the daily out-of-sight contributions that people with psychiatric disorders make to their own families, to each other. Um, many of them, if they can, get jobs and contribute an enormous amount in volunteer work. And there are lots and lots and lots of contributions that they make to care of elderly parents that never get reported because people don't ask. Absolutely, absolutely. We talk about family burden, but we 
um, some researchers at University of Wisconsin turned that on its head and finally started documenting the contributions that people make. And I can tell you in our study of how people ended up on getting disability income, SSI and SSDI, nobody, nobody preferred that to working. Most of them wanted to work. They were embarrassed. Mm -hmm. They couldn't decide if it was welfare or not. And, um, you know, we have to look at what opportunities are available for them. Um, You know, people with psychiatric disorders had to fight to get covered by the ADA. The other disability groups wanted to exclude them. And (laughs) it puts people into this terrible dilemma. And I hate to go back to Foucault, but... um, what Foucault also says in Madison Civilization is that this quote-unquote sin is the sin of idleness. This is what um, created the asylum slash poorhouses because people were not productive citizens and the emerging industrial state needed workers. Right, so it was the inability to work and contribute to society that meant that these people needed to be... That's right. ...and lost their voice. Um, But that's persisted. And in fact, you know, we know from vocational rehabilitation programs, support and employment, that people can... A huge number of people can return to work. Yes. You're saying not only just paid work, but also the tacit contribution to the community. Absolutely. Um, which goes unrecorded. To to daily life. We know just from studies um, that have emerged recently about how much caregiving of people with impairments and disabilities at home and elderly parents, it's billions and billions and billions of dollars worth of caregiving. That's interesting. It's been documented. It's been collected like that. Yeah, for... In the healthcare sector, the other thing I think that we have to acknowledge is that um, there are a lot of people who get jobs taking care of and supposedly caring with people with psychiatric disorders. Every time I've been involved in trying to humanely and wisely close a state psychiatric hospital, there's been a huge political pushback from the unions and from people who see the hospitals as huge sources of employment. Mm-hmm. That's an old concept. Well, who's that? Durkheim? Yeah, it's happened here. I mean, yeah. there's a big hospital in a small community north of here. It's been the major employer for many generations. That hospital will never close. You know, we don't have too much time, and I yeah. do want to introduce this other issue of um, prodromal illness and early psychosis, um, just when things may be getting started on the wrong track, yeah. emerging. There's been a lot of um, push within um, psychiatry to help identify people who are at risk of developing a psychosis. Mm-hmm. And um, should you medicate or should you do other things? And right. I know that you've been involved in some interesting research around that, and um, I'd love to hear a little bit about it. Well, um, this is a really emergent area, um, the early intervention. It's, it's, it really fits our folk model of a stitch in time saves nine and this idea that earlier is better than later. 
And the problem there, um, even though there's clearly some promise, is that we don't have a good way of identifying who is at risk for developing a psychosis. And the danger is that we would um, have what we would call false positives. We would identify people who are not going to get schizophrenia, who are not really at risk for it. Let's come back after a break and continue along this theme. Thanks. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. Are you feeling overwhelmed? Do you lack energy and enthusiasm? Do you really want to change your thoughts and feelings? Can you really stay sane when your life isn't? Of course you can. Just by listening to Stay Sane Now each week with Claudine Strzok and co-host Wesley Stoller. You'll have fun and learn how to make each new day the best day of your life. Every show is designed to energize and get you started off on the next week. Stay Sane Now is broadcast live Thursdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific on 7th Wave Network. Two views, different topics, questions, answers, news, and advice. You'll want to check out Ecoman and the Skeptic live from Philadelphia University. Every week, join hosts Rob Fleming and Chris Pestor as they tackle a different topic on sustainability. You'll hear all sides of the issue supported by guests who provide valuable insights. Get ready to be engaged, educated, and entertained when you tune into Ecoman and the Skeptic. Broadcast live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Green Talk network. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Have we got a high-energy, all-access sports show for you. It's Outside the Huddle, starring Lemont Williams with co-host Jacob Greer. Each week, join Lemont and Jacob as they take callers, discuss the week's top stories in the world of sports, and sit down with active and former players to discuss their transition from sports to business. Outside the Huddle is a great resource for players making career transitions both on and off the field. Tune in Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 Central, and 5 Pacific for Outside the Huddle on the Voice America Sports Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Hi, welcome back. Um, Mark Green with Sue Estroff. 
Um, all right, Sue, before the break, and I've got to get my timing better on these breaks. <laughs> all right. <laughs> um, before the break, we just started talking about um, early identification of people at risk. Mm-hmm. And you've got some conceptual problems with that, but mm-hmm. also some, cal- um, some problems with the idea of calculating whether to intervene and how. Mm-hmm. And uh, the idea there is that this is not a low-risk proposition. Um, let's say um, my primary care doctor tells me when I'm 40, gee, you've got high cholesterol. Um, I want to put you on a statin now because it's going to make a big difference when you're 70. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a relatively low-risk intervention. But to take a 7, 8, 9, 10-year-old or even a 14, 15-year-old who's struggling and who may meet some criteria and say, um, you know what, um, you, d- you don't have to be thinking and feeling this way. We're, let's try these medications. Let's tell you and your family what schizophrenia and so forth and so on. is a very high risk mm-hmm. for um, because our identification is so imprecise for uh, a person bearing a label and having experiences that really are not what they should have had. Right. So it is true that now the researchers have agreed not to do medication interventions with um, sort of sub-symptomatic, maybe prodromal people for a while. So, And I think a part of that, there is, um, the history, I think, of this has been that um, several researchers um, were talking about the time um, that people would be unmedicated right. and psychotic or, or right. have some subsyndromal um, symptoms, right. whatever right. that meant, um, you know, who um, would benefit from antipsychotics because it was damaging to the brain. Right, um, right. And um, we might be able to head things off at the past. And I think that there's, I was, we were talking in the break, um, John Boller um, has done some interesting meta-reviews, meta-analyses um, mm-hmm. of um, many of those studies mm-hmm. and really um, showed that um, there was no evidence um, mm-hmm. that early intervention with medication um, made any difference. Um, and right. in contrast, postponing the antipsychotic right. um, medications for non-dangerous um, right. uh, people may facilitate a reduction in long-term medication dependence. Right. Um, right. Fascinating. And also... You mentioned um, the open dialogues and other family intervention programs, mm-hmm. which, in contrast, do show quite profound impact um, mm-hmm. on um, reduction of medication use, but also just people doing better over the long run. Right, right. and everybody being happier about it. Um, it the sort of medication first, um, I think, is, is not helping us all that much. The problem there is that we have enormous corporate pressures to prescribe meds. We have enormous societal pressures to cut costs, which means substituting prescriptions for people. And without adequate people who are trained and present and often very healing, uh, we can't make that transition. Mm-hmm. Right. right. Um, so... So we're coming up towards the end of the program. Where do you think we stand now in 2010? <laughs> and um, what do you think um, is on the horizon? What, what's exciting in this field? Well, what I find very exciting is something that you got to witness uh, along with me at the INTAR meeting, and that is this 
enormous um, emergence of users who are advocates and researchers and providers who are not going to be silent and who are not going to accept the status quo and who are challenging those of us who do research and providers and who are very articulate about it. And I think we're in a real period of flux where the rest of medicine is talking about doing patient-centered care. And I think psychiatry is a little bit behind because, of course, their patients don't have any insight. But I'm very hopeful that this period of challenge of um, who speaks for me, of nothing about me without me, is a real challenge to receive knowledge and uh, to people like me who try to um, carefully represent others to say, to respond, okay, how do we work this out? You know, I value your research. Maybe you don't value mine. Can we work together? And uh, The same is true for using what are called peer counselors or peer providers we're just starting in with that, and it's certainly not a panacea. We need to know what the um, impacts are on the providers and how people adapt, which teams make it work, which teams don't. We don't want set, to set people up. But what I find most exciting is this shifting of roles and challenging of authority. Hopefully out of it will come something better. I mean, I'd say certainly for me it's been um, a very exciting thing to listen um, to uh, peer counselors that we have at Westbridge and um, other advocacy groups, Mm -hmm. um, which challenges a lot of the things which I knew were um, (laughs) flimsy um, but had forgotten. You know, so, um, you know, certainly, you know, I've had an excellent and thorough psychiatric education mm-hmm. um, in Ivy League settings, and you forget. Um, yeah. And um, you do. You, you know, and, uh, yeah, we're, we're definitely guilty of that. Yeah. So, and it's also, I think that the critical psychiatry movement is shifting from anti-psychiatry yes. to critical psychiatry. Right. So it's, it, they're much more... Um, thoughtful, reflective group um, rather than, uh, and, and so harder to write off. It, it's, it's not the hell no, we won't go. It's a much more nuanced kind of collaborative decision-making and so forth and so on. But where the line still gets drawn is at involuntary treatment, whether it's inpatient or outpatient. Right, and, and I know that some um, advocates... Um, some users will say, I'm thinking of um, um, Ron Bassman, um, yeah. talked about um, you know, the need for people with mental illness to be equally accountable for violence or crimes. Um, it, having a mental illness does not excuse that accountability. That's right. And, um, and yeah. We hear this from the public. And so one of my colleagues at Duke is really pushing the idea of an advanced directive or a treatment directive so that um, even if you're confined or you um, are um, not able to express yourself well, that your wishes in terms of how you'd like to be treated and what helps you and what doesn't um, are available to treaters. I think that's one avenue. But I, I think in the end that without the pressure to do things differently that come from these advocates and come from uh, research, 
things will stay the same, and that's not acceptable. Right. Well, when you exclude the voice, and as an anthropologist, you, you, this is something you know and study so well, right? Um, when you exclude the voice of so many people and fail to look at the cultural embeddedness of what your of your practice, yes. um, then you get then you stall, and progress can't, things fall into a deep hole. Well, you get lousy science if you don't. Uh, a laboratory scientist would never get away with ignoring the data the way <laughs> we ignore what people say to us. So, Sue, we've come to the end of the show. Thanks oh, I'm sorry. your work and participating on the show. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Okay. Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. Appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.